All right, this was an absolutely thrilling interview, and I'm saying that my inner geek is coming out here today. Uh, we were so fortunate today to get uh, an absolutely legend in the economic space on the show today, Dr. Sherry Cooper. Now, Dr. Sherry Cooper comes with a history of uh, being the chief economist for BMO Bank. She's written multiple books. She's led the way for women in a economic space and more importantly today she is the chief economist for dominion lending centers so an incredible lady she's highly sought after for uh news networks podcasts interviews and much more we're very fortunate i'm today joined by my co-host derek williamson derek what do you think the listeners are going to gather from the show today and what did you pick up yeah, um, I just got to say we're extremely lucky to have Dr. Sherry Cooper on the show. I'm not sure how we managed, but we did uh, and very grateful for it. Um, you know, we discussed a, a handful of different topics, but primarily what we wanted to focus on was what our listeners want to hear, which is, you know, what's happening in real estate, local and across the country? What's happening with interest rates, right? There's a lot of fear if interest rates are going to increase. Is that going to happen? So we touched on that. Uh, we touched on the overall economy and, and you know, the, the COVID crisis and what we're expecting. And, you know, if there's a second wave, what is that going to look like? So a ton of amazing insights. I, I highly recommend that everybody tune in right until the end. Uh, this show is something that we spend a lot of time on. So if you're loving it, liking it, make sure to subscribe, rate us on iTunes, share it with your friends and your family. And I think you're going to like this one. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. We are, I have to say, we're, we're actually thrilled uh, that you took the time out of your day to uh, join us. Uh, Derek and I, um, I'm not going to say we geeked out, but we did geek out a little bit uh, and we spent some time uh, behind the scenes chatting and working and, and trying to figure out, okay, what are the best questions that we can get over to you today? But, um, you know, um, before we get into any questions that we want to touch on today, I, I think really what we'd love to do is to take a minute or two just uh, sharing with our audience a little bit about uh, who you are and, and what you do and, and so forth. Uh, um, obviously, you've got an amazing backstory, which we're going to uh, introduce as well through our podcast. But you've, you've done everything from being a chief economist with BMO, writing books, uh, leading a, a number of movements, and today are, are a chief economist for Dominion Lending Centers, which is absolutely incredible. And it says a lot about what you've accomplished um, at this point right now, we, we have to, to kind of jump in and just kind of ask, what is your day-to-day -day with uh, Dominion Lending Centers look like? What, what is involved with that? Well, it certainly changed since the pandemic, but um, I, I have uh, worked from home for the last five years since I left uh, FEMO. And I love that because it just lends so much more flexibility and not having to spend a lot of time commuting, which is great. Uh, and it did mean that I was hit, I could hit the ground running when all this happened. Uh, but I have been so busy writing about and speaking about what this pandemic means. And, you know, for the economy, it has been absolutely a once in a lifetime kind of development that is, uh, you know, we're breaking records every day. So the numbers coming out will continue to be either the highest or the lowest, depending on what, what uh, the data are. But it's a very difficult time. And it's one where there's so much uncertainty and lack of confidence. And as a result, the governments around the world have jumped in with both feet. And I'm happy to say that I think Canada is, has handled this quite well, and particularly in, in comparison to the United States. 
Yeah, that's interesting. That's really good to hear. And, you know, I think that Alex and I are both um, definitely in agreement with with the way that the government's handled this. I think that uh, they've taken a lot of very good steps and in a very short period of time, right? It's you're really thinking on your toes in these situations because nobody saw this coming and nobody knows how long it's going to um, go on for. But um, back to what Alex was referencing about, you know, your history and your journey and how you got to where you are. You've obviously reached amazing levels of success in your industry. Um, maybe you could kind of bring us along a little bit of a quick journey as to, you know, what brought you here? And is this what you envisioned when you were, you know, graduating school? And um, just tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. Okay, well, I, um, I, I'm uh, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. And I, uh, when I finished college, in fact, undergraduate, I didn't decide on a major in economics until I took my first econ course, simply because it was offered at 10 (laughs) o'clock. And I, um, I needed a 10 o'clock class, you know, I had a hole in my in my schedule, and I immediately fell in love with it. So something about the rigor and the mathematical aspect of it, along with the psychological, social science aspect of it, really turned me on. And I um, had a couple of mentors who were economics professors, and they suggested I go on to graduate school. Well, I had never met anyone with a PhD. I had no idea uh, what was involved. I wasn't even that sure what economists do in my early days, but um, they assured me that I could get fellowship money and went on and did a PhD. And when I finished, I went to work for the Fed in Washington, which was fabulous. I mean, what a wonderful learning experience. And um, I came to Canada just, again, serendipity. Um, I, I, was, I was married, it's my ex-husband, but he was Canadian, although he had become a US citizen and uh, we were living in Washington and he was offered a job in Toronto. I had never been to Toronto and we had a two-year-old little boy and I said I'd try it for a year. Uh, and that was a long time ago. <laughs> so, um, and I started working on Bay Street. I went to work for Burns Fry, which was subsequently bought by, well, we were bought by two big US banks and then bought ourselves back and sold ourselves to the Bank of Montreal. So uh, it's been an incredible journey. And Canada has been very good to me. So I, I love it here. And, and, and then today, fast forward, uh, we're hanging out in other sides of the country uh, and obviously going through a, a very, very, very trying for a time. And, and that's not, not to joke about, but a very trying time. And I can't imagine that when you started this journey, you, you uh, pictured uh, this uh, type of situation ever occurring, which brings me to my next question, which is we, we have seen other types of quote unquote recessionary situations in, in the last 20, 30, 40 years. I would love to know, uh, have you ever experienced anything remotely close to this in your career? No, but I did study um, pandemic in that when Toronto was hit by SARS, I was intrigued by that um, because I just in looking at what the implications were, in the early days of SARS, which was in like 2003, uh, I met a number of, of public health professionals who were telling me that it was only a matter of time before we would have a pandemic. Hmm. And oh my God, the thought of that and what it would require was something that I looked into and then looked into it even further when H5N1, the avian flu, hit the world. And there were those who thought that was going to be a pandemic. So I remember writing a report when I was at BMO 
about what a pandemic would do to the economy. And it was all hypothetical, but I knew that it would require lockdown and total disruption. So I thought about this before. And then lo and behold, um, once things blew up in China, let's say by January, I was, I was wondering, I wonder, you know, could this be the big one? And of course, it wasn't until March when the WHO announced that pandemic had started, but it was very clear before then that it was heading our way and this could well be what it has turned out to be. They say that we can always look back to history and learn from history and what's happened to help us uh, not only understand what's happening today, but to learn from today. Um, just understanding, you know, some of the things that have happened in the past, whether it was SARS, N1, or any other type of recession, what do you think is the biggest thing from a uh, from e an economic standpoint that you'd say we could learn from this uh, and from history in particular and put in place now? Well, just how unprepared we've been. Um, so many people in denial uh, when government public health people uh, were warning, making like, like the noises about how serious this could be. We seem to ignore it. Um, maybe Canada a little less so than other countries because of SARS. But you know, when, when there's a big public health crisis, you set up all sorts of um, programs like stockpiling, uh, protective, personal protective equipment, et cetera. But you know, as time goes on and it costs money to do that, you get lax and you kind of forget about it. And uh, that's clearly what has happened. And what we do going forward, I think that having a dedicated department within the federal government, as well as provincially, to look at disease is um is very important and and at least in canada everyone has access to health care so yeah. we're in much better shape in general than in the united states where many people and particularly if you've lost your job and you lose your health insurance it's 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 actually a disaster and we've seen that playing out in many parts of the u.s that's a really good point. I actually never thought of that on the other side of the border. That's, um, yeah, we actually probably take that for granted in Canada. So it's a good point to bring up, definitely. Um, now, obviously, every country has different strategy when it comes to assisting through, you know, a potential downturn or a recession. So, you know, our government has been has been giving money to the people, the CERB fund, um, the Bank of Canada has dropped it interest rates one and a half percent to obviously help stimulate borrowing and the economy at the same time. Uh, what are your views and, and kind of do you value what the government and the Bank of Canada are doing? And do you think that what they're doing is working as good as it could be? Um, well, I do value what they're doing. I'm very impressed with Governor Paulos and his response. Um, he shocked the world, myself included, when in early March he announced the 150 basis point rate cut yeah. all in one fell swoop when he had been saying for months and months and months that interest rates were low enough and Canada was resilient. Um, what it did for me is it made me realize just how serious this pandemic is because he wouldn't have done that if he hadn't been briefed by public health officials. Um, and, and briefed in a way that none of us laymen, non-medical people would have understood at that point. Well, when that happened, I was certain that this was not your usual recession. This was something much, much bigger. And the government has responded, but just like every other government, they need to, they, they are, increasing assistance again and again and again because as much as they're going into debt it's never enough given the lockdown continuing 
So speaking of the the debt component, um, which there's obviously been, you know, billions of dollars accounted for to help the country of Canada, do you foresee uh, income tax increases, like dramatic income tax increases to help recoup some of that money over the next five, 10 years? Um, that is a second order of business. You see, yeah. they have no choice right now. They will do whatever it takes to prevent unnecessary insolvencies. I mean, you don't want to see individuals or businesses that are through no fault of their own going bankrupt. And, and so what that means over the longer term is, a, again, like a, a second order consideration. The good news is interest rates are extremely low. So the cost of borrowing money by the federal government is very low. But also the Bank of Canada is buying government bonds. So in essence, the Bank of Canada is financing all of this government spending. And that is okay for the period over which the economy needs to regain its potential growth. Ultimately, down the road, what happens? Well, I mean, we're printing money, basically. We're increasing the supply of money to provide enough liquidity that those who need to borrow to maintain the next few months and the last few months of disruption, um, that normally that would be considered inflationary down the road. but it's actually the opposite because this is a medically induced economic coma. It isn't because of something intrinsic within the economy. It's a government force shutdown having nothing to do with the economy, which is a very different animal. And in time, the Bank of Canada will let its balance sheet shrink again. And as the economy comes back, we'll see that the debt will diminish as a percent of the economy. But it probably will be years before we're where we were at the end of 2019. It probably will be, let's say three years. And the fact is, not, no one really knows because it'll be determined by the virus and whether or not a vaccine is publicly readily available and when. Very, very, very interesting points on that. Um, one quick note that I wanted to bring up is you suggested potentially three years before we see ourselves going back to where we were. Uh, right before this, this is a conversation we wanted to get into later, but I'd love to touch on this right now since you brought it up. Does that mean in your mind that we are, obviously right now, but beyond this, entering a form of recessionary period for the next foreseeable few years? Is that what you're indicating or or am I misinterpreting? Yeah. No, what, what, it, what I'm saying is that in the second quarter, the GDP numbers will be hugely negative just by virtue of the fact that almost everything is shut down. Everything except, you know, food, uh, grocery stores and drugstores, basically. So the GDP growth in the second quarter could be minus 40%. That's actually the average of forecasts of economists in Canada. But again, nobody knows. Even the Bank of Canada says, it could be minus 15 to minus 40, you know, big range. And none of us, that, that's right. Then I think with luck, we'll see positive growth thereafter. But what I'm saying is it's such a steep decline that it'll take two or three years before the unemployment rate is back down to the very low levels in, at the end of 2019. And it may even take longer than that. And there's going to be a lot of 
what economists call creative destruction, meaning that um, there are winners and there are losers. And we've already seen some big winners. Um, Zoom, as an example, where we're recording this, has obviously been you know, incredibly uh, profitable. Um, a little known company prior to the lockdown. Um, Amazon is just raking in the profits. So is Loblaws, by the way, and Walmart and Canadian Tire, PayPal, Wayfair, Cisco, you know, long list of, of businesses that benefit when the world wants more remote connectivity as well as online shopping, online everything. Um, so there will be businesses that will not survive and then there'll be others and not just existing companies, but new companies that will evolve and, and be success stories. And so the, the job losses and people won't all be going back to the jobs that they lost. In some cases, people will, will, it'll take a while, but they'll find other jobs or new jobs where they'll do what they do, but do it differently. And, and that's the, the sad thing about this is that it, it disproportionately hits lower income people um, because they're the people that typically are wage earners, hourly workers, um, low-level service sector jobs that require face-to-face -face that cannot work from home. And, and that's very difficult. So I guess we need to hope that the winning sectors and industries are going to produce enough employment to help the sectors that are actually going to diminish, right? Um, right. But you bring a good point up about you know, a lot of people that have been laid off might not be going back to their job. And it's funny, we've had this conversation so many times on the lending front. A lot of clients say, yes, I'm laid off, but I'm going back in two months, right? Why won't the lender use my income? Why won't they use the CERB income? And it's not that the lender can't assume that you're going back to work, but I think the bigger concern is, is that company still going to be in operation, right? That's what a lot of the employees, the people working for the business, aren't really thinking about that side of it. So I've had that conversation a lot. So it's interesting to hear you say that as well. If you're working for a company that continues to pay you and you yeah. are working from home, not just staying at home, then nothing really has changed. Yeah. So if you have solid employment and you can work from home, the thing is though, some people can, if you're a dentist, you can't work from home. Now, um, if you're a server in a restaurant, you can't work from home. And we all know that there's only so long that small businesses or even medium-sized businesses can function and, and continue to exist without any revenues coming in. And that's what some of the government programs are attempting to do um, by paying the CERB to individuals at $2,000 a month for four months or um, incentivizing businesses to keep their employees on their payrolls, that helps. Yeah. And, and so, and the sooner we can get back out and do our jobs and, and create economic growth, um, the easier it will be to return to a, a growing economy. But you know, it's life and death. So there's a real balancing act. You don't want to open up too quickly if it means that there's a surge in COVID-19 cases and the hospitals are overwhelmed. And in some provinces, like Ontario and especially Quebec, that seems to be still a risk. Um, less so in other provinces, and that's why BC and Alberta, with relatively few cases, have been able to open up far faster than Ontario and Quebec. 
you mentioned innovation and uh, obviously our primary on our side as, as mortgage professionals, we work in the real estate industry and that's obviously uh, something that we see and hear about every day. And I, I believe we've seen more innovation from lenders and banks and uh, real estate companies and agents and everybody in the industry in the last two to three months uh, in a lot of circumstances than we've seen in years. And and as, as people, uh, our team are, are very forward thinking. So I, I believe that's why we've done well in this timeline. That being said, um, you know, speaking on the real estate piece, this is a question that keeps coming up uh, because it is such a big piece of our clients' wealth, really, at the end of the day, and Canadians, Canadians' wealth. Going into that piece, um, what we're seeing day to day, just to kind of ground floor share with you our experience right now in the, the Lower Mainland, uh, predict particularly is uh, almost like a slingshot where, and, and you, you, you ch chatted about this not long ago, is we're seeing it having have dropped off and then maintained values and it's, it's almost going straight up the demand right now. Uh, it, maybe it's supply, maybe it's a number of other factors, but I'd love to hear your, your feedback on the supply and demand right now and what we're seeing right now. Is this something that you believe, uh, in particular, let's talk about the bigger cities like Vancouver and Toronto. Is this something that you believe is, is going to be short-lived? Is it uh, something that you think will last? What are your thoughts on, on the real estate industry as a whole in terms of activity right now? Well, the good news for real estate is that had it not been for COVID-19, we probably would have had, I think we most definitely would have had the strongest spring season for real estate in a very, very long time, maybe even wow. historically the strongest. So the underlying factors, particularly for the large cities, were very positive. Now, of course, that came to a halt in mid-March and the sales activity plunged as well in April, but so did new listings. So not much change in price because both demand and supply basically were just kind of everybody was like halted. Um, what happens next is there's still pent up demand. There were people that were very hot to buy and sell in this spring market. And they are still out there. And the question is, they'll have to do it in a different way. I have talked to many realtors over the course of the last couple months and they're all telling me the same thing, that they are innovating, as you say, with all sorts of um, new virtual tours, even using that, that platform to stage a property to show you just how it could be improved and you know what kind of decor do you like? You want to see it modern? You want to see it traditional, etc. I mean, there's some really cool things you can do that aren't expensive. And in addition, thanks to technology, um, you can, and they will certainly, uh, be able to show you properties, either in real terms or some, the agent opens the door, shows you in, you can focus on whatever you want to focus on, et cetera. What is, in my view, is the multiple bidding situations may, may decline in number. Um, that was certainly a major factor in the GTA and the greater Golden Horseshoe in, in the Toronto region. Um, and there will be some opportunities. There will be bargains because there'll be forced sellers. There could well be people that bought before they sold and then they get nervous and you know they want to close quickly and so they may be willing to uh, negotiate down the price and then of course there'll be buyers who have lost their jobs and won't be buyers anymore until they find another one so on both sides there will be effects 
On that note, so speaking of uh, people who have lost their jobs, uh, and this is where I kind of leaned into if this if this uh, spike will be short lived or if it will carry forward as we see more people comfortable with getting back into real estate is obviously a lot of the institutions and a lot of other lenders offered deferral programs for for anywhere between one month to six months. And uh, we also know that uh, while a lot of people who needed it took advantage of it, there were also a lot of people who didn't need it, who took who used uh, the program. Um, my question to you is, do you think that we're going to notice any change in the market as that six month hits? Do you think we're going to see a, a little bit of a drop or a decline? Or or do you think that, you know, we'll probably already have found our happy place at that point and that'll be inconsequential? Well, it, I can't say it'll be inconsequential. Everybody's talking about this deferral cliff and that when you do have to make your monthly payment, and in a few months, and that monthly payment is bigger than it used to be because the interest that has been lost has been amortized. Um, if you're not working, you are, you've got a problem. And that's one concern that was mentioned by CMHC that, you know, are we going to see these people go into delinquency and ultimate default? Um, one thing I do know is Canadians make their mortgage payments. They'll make their mortgage payments before they'll make any other payment. And so if at all possible, they will. Also, the banks will work with households. Um, the banks and the lenders in general don't want to own these homes. And they very much want to give people the space they need in order to recoup and um, get their financial houses in order. This, I mean, this is a lot about our economic system as far as banking is concerned, but it also, to me, uh, says a lot about how important uh, homes in general, housing, is from a financial standpoint for the consumer. So, so it, I mean, maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but it says to me also that if I'm someone looking to invest in anything these days, that housing is as safe as it ever has been and will continue to be. Would you, would you agree with that statement or at least in Canada, uh, in the areas we're living? Well, real estate is finite and land is finite. And uh, especially in some of our very attractive cities, it has, always been a great investment and it has its ups and downs but it has always been a great investment and i don't see that changing whether or not this is the time to rush out and invest um that's a different story and that depends on an individual's um, particular circumstance and whether or not rental because um, if you're you're buying as an investment, then you're typically going to be renting the property. And we'll see what happens. One of the big factors for uh, the Toronto area, as well as Vancouver, uh, is immigration. And one thing that this pandemic has disrupted is immigration. And not just in terms of permanent um, residents, but students coming in from all over the world are a major factor at our major universities. And many of those foreign students were accepted for this coming fall year, but they haven't been able to get the visas just because embassies are shut down and, and you know everything has been disrupted. So we could see a period where you don't have the demand coming, the rental demand coming from immigration. And if that means softer rental markets, softer levels of rent, it might be that the cost of carrying an investment property is, is higher. Even though mortgages, and we haven't talked about this yet, but mortgage rates are almost at record lows very close to record lows. And there's one thing I do feel um, comfortable in predicting is the Bank of Canada is not gonna raise interest rates in 2020 or in 2021. So interest rates will remain low. So typically, just to make sure that, you know, I understand that correctly, typically the Bank of Canada wouldn't actually increase interest rates until our, our economy is in a much more stable position. Is that correct? 
well, that's, that's right, until our economy isn't, isn't stable at very high unemployment, but stable right. at much lower employment. Right. Okay. I mean, lower unemployment. Sorry. So, I mean, there's the Bank of Canada wants to assure credit availability and to help in any way possible. And they've done quite a few things. Not only have they lowered the interest rates, but they've reduced the buffers, meaning the reserves that the banks have had to hold so that they had greater availability to provide credit. And whether that was credit to households or credit to businesses, they have that room. And the third thing the bank has done is to be the buyer of last resort for financial assets. So markets would remain liquid. So right. that money and credit would be available. And, and that, that was one of the mistakes that led to the Great Depression is that the central banks did not do that. And this is, this is a, a very different ballgame right now. And central banks all over the world are doing this. Right. So I have a couple of questions on those points. So the first one I wanted to dive into, and hopefully you can shed some light, is we've been through a bit of a roller coaster with interest rates, right? So um, about two months ago, roughly, uh, is kind of when everything started to happen. COVID was announced in Canada, and we saw three big drops from the Bank of Canada, one and a half percent total. Right. So the goal of that, obviously, is to lower the cost of borrowing for consumers right. to initiate further borrowing, right? To help help with the economy overall. But what we saw shortly after that drop was banks' interest rates actually went up, right? right. So it was kind of going against what the Bank of Canada was trying to do. Um, and I have some kind of intel on that, but I was curious to hear your thoughts as to why that happened and why the banks increased. I know there was liquidity issues and, and risk factors that come into play. Um, but yeah, maybe you can help out and, and shed some light on that. Okay, well, so when the Bank of Canada cut interest rates by 150 basis points, the the market reaction was oh my god things must be really terrible way worse than we thought and therefore risk premia widened tremendously so whereas the government you know five year yield plunged to 25 basis points the corporate yield widened. So the cost to borrow um, by businesses, including banks, increased sharply. And there was also kind of deer in the headlights paralysis, counterparty risk, like well, I'm not gonna, like one bank didn't wanna lend to another bank overnight because who knew who was really in trouble? That's similar to what happened during the credit crisis 10 years ago. The Bank of Canada then went into markets and bought bankers' acceptances, um, commercial paper. They bought all the instruments that would reduce the cost of funds to the banks. And then finally, the banks took prime rate down the full 150 basis points and mortgage rates started to edge down again. So um, right now, both the variable rate mortgage rates, like the best lowest rate there and the fixed mortgage rate are both very near the all time lows. So we've kind of been through the ups and flows. We, we saw they were, they were reasonable. They came skyrocketing down. We saw them go up a week later. And now over the last six, seven weeks, we've seen them all kind of trickle down and, and they seem to be fairly stable. We haven't seen a ton of movement. So, and that's probably gonna be in that range for at least 12 to 24 months. Uh, well, there's a number of issues. For example, we haven't seen bank earnings yet. Right. Census also started and we are going to see them very soon we'll see them for the end of may so the last week in may the last 10 days of may we are going to see each of the banks announce their 
earnings, you got to expect earnings will be down dramatically year over year. And they're going to announce their non-performing loans. And that's a key because we know non-performing loans are going up and banks have to hold reserves against them. So there's a reason why bank stock prices have come down so much. I mean, they're down 20 to 30%. Yeah. And so we could see uh, whichever bank is doing the worst will no doubt get another hit in its stock price and its cost of funding may edge up. I mean, it's just, a, I'm just warning there could be some volatility there. That's a good point. That's really good to know. Um, now, you've already kind of touched on this, but I did want to get into the deposit piece. So obviously a key factor in lending from an institutional standpoint, it, it's dependent on how much how much money you have on deposit. And part of those deposits are, you know, our three savings accounts and our RSPs, which is, you know, helps them lend the funds out in the form of new loans. So uh, going through something like this, I know a lot of people have pulled money out of the public markets, equity markets, people have pulled money out of banks and they're holding cash. Um, you've already touched on the fact that the Bank of Canada is helping the, you know, the corporate banks dramatically, which is going to help them get through these times. But are you seeing a lot of people, are the deposits in banks a lot lower than they were kind of pre-COVID? No, they're not. Um, not for the large banks, you know, the chartered banks. Um, and remember that in some respects, the Bank of Canada's buying securities, they, that money flows into bank deposits. So it helps to offset the withdrawals. But the, the, it's the smaller lenders, and especially the non-bank lenders that don't have a deposit base to rely on, that have been helped by CMHC and the Bank of Canada buying mortgages to package them into mortgage-backed securities. So that provides liquidity for all the lenders. And they've been very aggressive in doing that. So just on that piece, you know, we talked about CMHC purchasing bulk mortgages from a mortgage company. Um, if CMHC, you know, they talked about recently about potential decreases in values and, and changing underwriting guidelines. If that was CMHC's mindset and they stopped purchasing, well, first of all, do you think that we could ever get to a point where CMHC would stop purchasing mortgages because of their thought on the real estate market and risk? Um, I sure don't think so. I don't think, remember, CMHC is a government agency and it's the Department of Finance or more specifically, the finance minister that makes those decisions. CMHC also has been profitable, very profitable, returning billions of dollars each year to the Canadian taxpayer. So if CMHC stopped making, let's say, stopped making mortgages, then clearly it wouldn't have those revenues. Um, CMHC is part of the mechanism that is meant to support liquidity in the economy, not to dampen it. Now, if we believed that the economy was booming and the housing market was in a bubble, then they would do exactly what you say and what exactly what happened over the course of, of um, 2015, 2016, 2017, and early 2018. They, they made it more difficult to qualify for a mortgage. And in order to take what they considered to be the potential bubbly froth out of the housing market to reduce household debt to income. Now, are we in that situation now? Um, far from it. So if they were to do it, it would be an enormous policy error. Big mistake. And just, oh. I just don't see that happening. But um, 
And remember that the head of, of CMHC, Evan Siddall, who's the one that has said this, is not reappointed. So he is a lame duck. So this may be what he thinks should happen, but I wouldn't bet that it will happen. Well, that's really interesting because uh, just recently, and, and we spoke about this before you came on today, is uh, there were rumors, again, rumors of some changes and tightening of underwriting policy, which basically to make it you know straightforward for anyone listening here is uh, tightening the guidelines around qualifying for a CMHC loan, rumors about having to increase down payment or minimum down payments, which almost contradicts what we just said about housing being relatively safe and of course uh, not being in a bubble and uh, a number of other factors. Do you think that it's realistic that we could see the any of these changes occur or, or things become tighter or more difficult as we move forward? And we've already seen that from a banking standpoint, just in CMHC. I, I think that the way that underwriting standards are more difficult is just for those people who have lost their jobs. Um, let's face it, if you're on EI, you're not getting a mortgage. And that and there are going there are we know millions more people on employment insurance than there used to be so yes in that regard it is tougher to get a mortgage but all other things constant if you could get a mortgage before and you still have your job and you still have your wages and you still have your down payment then you're going to get a job you're going to get a mortgage now and at lower interest rates. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just unfortunate though that many households are vulnerable and um, less so depending on where you live in Canada because of COVID is, um, it's causing more damage in some parts of the country than in others. It appears just based on my experience as we round the corner here, um, at least in the last few weeks here, that the people, again, in our experience who have been, uh, I don't want to say hurt the most, but impacted quite heavily as it comes to qualifications are, again, first time buyers and people trying to enter the market. And uh, you're right. A lot of the people that are working are still going through the same uh, guidelines. Uh, however, we had some positive news on the horizon a few months ago about some possibilities of, of reducing the quote unquote stress test. Uh, those were uh, put on the back burner. Um, I don't know if we want to go too far down that road today, but it appears that just in our experience over here that things aren't getting any any easier for those first-time buyers. Do you anticipate any uh, policies changing or coming back in the near term or even the next 12 months that will assist those people or are they kind of where they are? Well, one thing that has already happened is that the banks have finally taken down their posted rates. So this week when the Bank of Canada announces the five-year conventional yield, it's likely to be at 4.94% instead of 5.04%. Now that's not a huge amount, it's a small amount, but it's something. Um, Yes, you're right. They had told us, ASFI, the bank regulator, had told us that the posted rates were too far out of line with market contract mortgage rates, and therefore they were going to shift to a market-driven yield. And, uh, and then they said, no, not doing that because of pandemic. Um, I think that may well come back at some point. It's not likely in the next six months, though, just because there's so much uncertainty. And there is so much uncertainty, and that's something that um, economists can make all the forecasts in the world, but it's really going to be the virus that determines the trajectory of, of the economic um, activity for now. You know, there's too much talk about a potential second wave in the fall. So we have to get beyond that to for people to start feeling really confident and, and for the policymakers to be willing to take to allow there be more risk, meaning to lower the qualifying rates significantly. Um, 
And, and as we've seen already, just because there's a second wave some places in Canada, there may not be in all places in Canada. And it is very, very definitely, you know, geographical. That's why each province is doing its own thing in terms of dealing with reopening. Um, and similarly in parts of the, different parts of the US and different parts of Europe, it's, uh, it very much is a local story. Thank you. Uh, Sherry, the last question we have for you is just actually you touched on it already is about that second wave. Uh, we'd love to know just a couple uh, questions on it. The first one would be if we do see that second wave, let's just let's just assume the geographical area region of, of British Columbia as an example. Uh, the first question would be, do you think that we'll be better off or worse off if that occurs? Uh, and then this, the follow-up question will be just about any suggestions that you might have for, for business owners coming back to work. So uh, the first one is just uh, better or worse off. Better or worse off, I, I presume you're talking about better or worse off compared to the first wave. Yeah, um, thank you. Right. Uh, I mean, clearly we don't want to see a resurgence in the number of cases. And particularly, we all know, everybody now who never even heard of the Spanish flu in 1918 knows that there was a second wave that was even more deadly mm -hmm. than the first wave. So that's what our fear is. Um, if that happens, it's, you know, it's a terrible thing. But we're better prepared now for a second wave than we were three months ago for the first wave. There's no question in my mind about that. That even though we're opening up in parts of the country, the health establishments are stockpiling. They're stockpiling um, ventilators and personal protective equipment, and they're not letting their guard down because it could happen. The other thing is, is that businesses, the, the, um, the vaccine world is, is on hyper mode in order to find a vaccine and also to find medications that would mitigate the symptoms. And so they're working at breakneck speed for that. So we can only hope that as time passes, the likelihood of something along those lines will be very helpful. And then finally, um, I believe that in Canada especially, where we trust government and we're much more compliant than in the United States, which is the other country I know best, um, that we will be sensitive to social distancing, even as we open up that we won't crowd each other in um, bars or we won't, and for those who do, you know, I mean, we have the option to stay away. And it may well be that for most, the, the most at-risk Canadians, they will stay away, even if restaurants are open, even if bars are open, even if people are crowding around, um, beachfronts or lakes or wherever, those who have pre-existing conditions, older Canadians, they, they will, they know the risks and they will protect themselves. So I certainly see a lot more masks on, on the streets than uh, ever before. And um, at least people have the options to protect themselves. I feel like we could probably have you on for six hours, but we're not allowed to do that. Uh, you've got a lot more <laughs> important things to do here today. Um, Sherry, uh, we just want to formally uh, thank you so much for taking the time out today to connect with us and share with us uh, such valuable insights. And I'd implore anybody who's watching or listening to this afterwards to please do uh, follow Sherry, uh, pick up some of her books. Um, she's a very smart lady. She knows her stuff. Um, so Sherry, uh, thank you for joining us today and, uh, sharing such value insights. Maybe one day in the future, we'll be able to wrangle you down again if we're lucky. So absolutely. Is there, so is there can, any, you can Go ahead, sir. see everything I write on sherrycooper.com, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. So thank Perfect. you. Perfect. We'll shoot. Amazing. Thank you very much, Sherry. Nice talking to you.
All right. Have yourself a wonderful rest of your day. We'll talk very soon.